0: Good morning, and welcome to Valley Point Church. I get the privilege of ending our journey here over the summer. This has been an 11-week-long series, so this has been a big one for us, a long one, and today we get to cap it all off. As we've been walking through this series entitled, The Question, The Creed, and My Response. And throughout these many different weeks, we've been given You know, some takeaways, some ideas, some thoughts of how we should be responding to the Jesus Creed. And a little bit later, we're going to review what that is, what the Jesus Creed is, for one last time in this series. But what I've tried to do at the end of each of these talks, uh, what we've done is we've tried to give some responses. Okay, here's all of this information. How should I respond to the Jesus Creed? And today, I'm going to try to funnel all of that down into two primary responses. Okay, after all of this that we've learned over the summer months, what should we do with all of this? Two primary responses. So that's where we're heading to at the end of all of this, and hopefully it all makes sense by the time we get there. But before we jump into the full content of today's message, I wanted to to take an opportunity to stop and share a moment of silence and a moment of prayer in response to some of the activity that has gone in, gone on in the world around us. And would you please join with me in a moment of silence for the soldiers who fell this week, and then I'll lead us in a time of prayer. God, it's in moments like these that we we have to default to you and say, you have the world in your hands. And we pray first and we honor those who have fallen in their service for our country. And we pray for their families who remain, for the sons and the daughters who are left without a parent, for the spouses who are left without a mate and for parents who are now without a child. And we pray for your healing in their family and bring comfort and only way that in a way that only you can, and we pray for all of these surrounding events that are swirling around, and we're reminded of the depravity of the human condition and how far that some of the world has fallen away from you. And we pray for healing. We pray for everyone who was lost um, in the tragic incidents and the families that remain behind, and and we just take heart and knowing that the ultimate battle isn't, isn't here. It's you. God, you hold the ultimate battle in your hands, and when things seem completely out of control here on earth, we can take heart that you remain in control, and we put our hope in you. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So as we walk through the New Testament, very quickly we discover that Jesus' ministry begins. So His earthly ministry is one of the things that I like to study most within Scripture. I find it fascinating, the historical context of the things that surrounded Jesus at His time here on earth, how He acted, what He did, where He went. It's all very intriguing to me. And one of the things we find is early in His ministry is that he kind of traveled alone. Now, people followed him because they were interested in him and what he was saying. It was very different. But he was kind of a, a... His ministry model was Jesus walking and traveling to a couple of different cities, and he would teach, and he would perform miracles. And he did this for a short time before he recruited any of his followers, all of his, his official 12 disciples that we're going to talk a little bit more about in a little bit. But it didn't take long. He didn't operate in that way for very long. Because very soon after, he begins to reach out and recruit some fellow disciples. And there's a fundamental shift that's easy to miss in the ministry model that Jesus had here on earth. But before we jump completely into that, Let me lay out our big idea for today. So this is where we want to land ultimately. The Jesus Creed requires a response of action or inaction. The Jesus Creed, it requires a response from us. And whether you realize it or not, you have responded to the Jesus Creed in one way or another. Now, I will say that today's talk is mostly bent toward those who... Are Christians. Those of us in the room who would say, I identify as a Christ follower, I have asked Jesus alone to save me, and I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a Christian. However, it's not solely for those individuals because today, if you're here and you've never made that decision or you've been kicking it around for a while and maybe you're here just investigating just a little bit more what this Jesus thing is all about, this is a good week for you because you're going to hear what it is that Christians believe in and then you're also going to hear what Jesus has required of us as his followers. And I hope that every week there are folks in this room ...that are considering Jesus. And I hope that people, that all of our folks are inviting others to come and see. And it's a safe place to investigate, to ask questions. And so I think there's something for everyone today. But the dialogue or the the events that we're going to first look at... ...all come out of the, uh, the book of Luke. And so it's Luke's account of the gospel. And he's tracking the events of Jesus... And this particular interaction is mostly detailed in its entirety in Luke chapter 5. And this is a fairly common um, known story within Scriptures where Jesus calls Peter to be his disciple. So we're just going to read this together, and then I'll provide some commentary uh, when we read through it. So Luke chapter 5, we're going to... start here in verse number five. It says, one day as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him. So this was a common occurrence when he began to teach people would just kind of flood toward him and they were pressing down on him to listen to the word of God. And you notice two empty boats at the water's edge for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets stepping onto the uh, stepping onto one of these boats Jesus asked Simon its owner Simon Peter to push it out onto the water and he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there when he had finished speaking he said to Simon now go out where it is deeper and let let down your nets to catch some fish master Simon replied We worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing, but if you say so, we'll let it down again. And this time, their nets were so full of fish, they began to tear. A shout for help brought the partners from another boat, and soon both boats were filled with so much fish, it was on the verge of sinking. And when Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees and said, Jesus, Lord, please leave me. I am such a sinful man. For he was so awestruck by the number of fish they had caught, as were the others who were with him. His partners, James, John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. And Jesus replied to Simon, "Don't be afraid. For now, for now on, you'll be fishing for people." And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. So, this is a very dramatic scene in Scripture. There's miraculous events occurring in the middle of all of this. And I don't know if you've ever seen the the television series, The Chosen. Well, they dramatize these events in a a very good, in 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 an impressive way. So, there's all of this activity that I think can sometimes overshadow what Jesus is saying to Peter. And even when we look at the words Jesus speaks to Peter at the end of this this, um, episode here, he says, from now on, you're going to be fishing for people. And even when we stop to to think about the implications of that, we kind of tie in the the fact that Peter's being called to ministry. You know, Jesus is drawing the comparison. You were fishing and bringing fish into a boat. Now you're going to be fishing for people, meaning you're going to bring people to me. And they're going to be saved because of the work that I'm doing. So he's fishing for people. But I would posit that that isn't even the most dynamic portion of what Jesus says. For me, the most profound word, singular word in his phrase is you. Jesus says, from now on, you. So here's that shift that I was talking about in Jesus' ministry model. He's not saying, okay, Peter, I need some followers. He's saying, I need you to do what I'm doing. And this was profound. And this was probably very startling to Peter. And there's no way he understood all of the implications of this in this moment with all of these happening, with all of this happening. But other Gospels are quoted, um, quoted Jesus as saying, Peter, I'm going to show you how to fish for people. He wasn't recruiting Peter as an administrative assistant to make sure he had his meals prepared and somewhere to sleep at night and to make sure all the money was in alignment. No, he was saying, Peter, I need something more from you, more significant than what anybody else is doing with me. And this floored Peter and every other disciple that Jesus brought underneath his leadership because they're looking at Jesus saying, wait a minute, you're the one who goes around talking and you're the one who performs miracles. You're the one who is claiming, you know, the credentials to be able to say and do all of these things. We don't have that. And again, Jesus says, I'm giving this to you. Profoundly, a little bit later in Jesus's ministry, he says to all of his disciples, as the Father sent me, I am sending you. And think about that for a moment. God has given Jesus this ministry, this task, this mission to execute on earth. And now Jesus is saying, I'm now commissioning you to go and execute this mission on earth. And Jesus knew it wasn't going to be pretty. He knew that the disciples were going to mess things up quite a bit. And in fact, they would abandon him. They, they abandoned him in his greatest moment of need. And he knew this, and, and he knew, look, this is going to be so much easier and so much better if I just do this myself. Because Jesus could execute the mission with perfection, but he didn't want perfection, he wanted followers who were willing to do the work. And I found some pretty interesting historical context surrounding this term, disciple, within the biblical context of how it's used. And I wanted to walk through the evolution of this term and kind of what it, how, it, how it's used uh, even t- today. So the, the origin of this word We find in scripture a disciple was a characteristic name for those who gathered around Jesus during his ministry. So again, as I was said before, he would travel, he would speak, he would teach, and people would begin to follow him. And then as people followed him, they began to believe in him, to say, okay, I I'm trust this this Jesus is who he says he is, and I'm trusting in him. So they would be considered his disciples. And those followers would not just follow, they would invite others to say, come and see, come and see. There's something to this person, Jesus, that's greater than anything we've ever seen before. Now, we know that Jesus particularly recruited 12 disciples that he brought into his inner circle and trained and spent more time with and sent out on his behalf But then we begin to see this evolve a little bit. The term disciple is carried into the book of Acts, but it begins to have a general sense of the word Christian. Now, Acts is just the biblical account of the early church. That's what Acts uh, describes. And what was happening is that eventually after Jesus' resurrection and his ascension back to heaven, there were more and more followers. There were more and more disciples And there was more time that passed, right? So there were more and more disciples who had never physically seen Jesus. They'd only heard the stories. They had never walked personally with him. And so that these followers could have the same weight of discipleship applied to these subsequent generations, this new term was given, Christian, to say, you have just as much responsibility now than those who served him in person. And then it finishes its evolution after the book of Acts. The term disciple is abandoned and is totally replaced with the word Christian in order to clarify its meaning, disciples of the Lord. Because by this time there were many different leaders claiming many different things and they all had disciples, they all had followers. And so the church, the Christian church said, we are going to identify specifically as Christ followers. So they were known as Christians. So they were distinctly disciples of the risen Jesus. So if we carry that into modern day, who now would Jesus consider to be his disciples? Well, me. He would consider me to be his disciple, and I'm called to do his missionary work here on earth, and Guess what? You. He also has called you. If you've put your faith in Jesus alone to save you, you don't have to be a pastor to be a disciple of Christ, to be an apprentice of Christ, to participate in the work of Jesus here on earth. He invites all who are willing. Be my disciples. Be my apprentices. But I don't need leaders who or uh, disciples who just follow me I need disciples who will be like me, who will tell others and recruit more disciples for me, and to live as an example of what Christ should be here on this earth. In the book, The Jesus Creed by Scott McKnight, the book that this series is based on, he says this, we call this the missionary task of the church. The the missionary task is the inevitable manifestation of the Jesus creed, meaning those who love others reach out with the good news of God, of God's love. There is a necessary reaction to all of this. That's required. And it can be surmised that Jesus' mission for all of his followers was to reach out to others with the good news of Jesus. And that's where we find ourselves today, and this is where we're going to circle back around to our big idea for today, which was the Jesus Creed requires a response of action or inaction. But before we get into how we're going to to define those two things, let's review the Jesus Creed. So in our series context, we've said there was a question, there was a creed. So what was the question? So the question was something posed in Scripture to Jesus. Some people were asking Him, what's the greatest commandment of all the commandments? If you could just pick one, they tried to pin Jesus into the corner and say, okay, give us the most important of all of the commands. And then the creed is His response, found in Matthew chapter 22. Jesus replies, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself because the entirety of the law and all of the demands of the prophets are all based on these two, what? Commandments. So if you get these two things right, all of the other things are going to fall into place. So he simplifies it for us. A command, Jesus clearly puts out, demands a response. A command demands some kind of response. And as Christ followers, we have two responses. There's two ways that we can respond. One is through action, and one by default is inaction. If we choose not to act, then we're choosing inaction, So let's take a look at these two things. So inaction, if we wanted to just define it, the technical definition of inaction is a lack of action where some is expected or appropriate. I could say my kids fall into this category most of the time. There's a lack of action where some is expected. Jesus expects us to act. When we don't, we're making a choice of inaction. So now let's begin to investigate, okay, what does action mean? What's the technical definition of action? It's the fact or the process of, do it, excuse me, of doing something <clears throat> typically to achieve an aim, all right? And then I found sort of a, um, an unofficial definition that I liked a little bit better. So here's what this says, an exciting or notable activity exciting or notable activity. How might this play out in our everyday lives? How, how, how does this work? So I think we could say that how we act and how we react certainly plays a part. What we say, how we respond to crisis, how we treat others, how we value others, how we respect the authority in place in our lives, how we protect the vulnerable, how we respond to other people's opinions. And one of the areas this can primarily uh, take place is in our vocations, right, where we work, because we interact with a variety of different people on a daily basis. So what if we just begin to ask ourselves, you know, how 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 do people think of us? How would they describe us in our work environments? They say we we extend grace, we're compassionate people, or are we angry? Are we willing to step on people to get to the next rung of the ladder? How would they describe your general disposition? Are you acting in ways that would represent someone who, excited about, who is excited about a, a notable activity. And even if you don't feel that way about your work, there's a greater work as Christ followers that we're called to, right? That is very notable and exciting and noble. There's nothing I could think of that's more noble than an eternal. Something that's Eternal. So as you think about how you respond, how you interact with those around you, people are either gaining a good representation of Christ by you, or they're gaining a negative idea of Christ. How do you respond to conflict? Do you tend to extend grace and compassion to people? Or are you arrogant? How do you respond to to mistakes and crisis and... Are you known to be one who sets others up for success? And it's usually not very hard to stand out in culture. It can simply just be willing to do the right thing consistently. Over time, just doing the right thing will make you stand out most of the time. And even if it costs you something, do the right thing. Gain a good reputation for the Lord. I know what some of you are thinking. This guy works at a church. It's really easy for him to have a good reputation at church. There's a bunch of Christians around him. and I would say that's fair. I probably do have an easier time at work doing all of this than some of you do in your work environments. However, I'll say this. I intentionally put myself in situations where I have to consciously remember the missionary task of the church. One of the ways that I do this is through coaching. So I coach many different uh, teams through, you know, rec leagues all throughout. I've coached baseball, basketball, soccer. Not that I'm good at any of these sports, but I coach them. And one, it's a good thing for for me to be able to, you know, it's quality time with my kids. But it's also a way to keep focus on the missionary task of the church. Because how are these kids responding to me? How am I representing Christ to these kids? And what are they telling their parents about how I'm treating them? The words I'm saying to them. Do they trust me with their kids? What about my reputation in the league? How do the other coaches think about me? How do the league leaders think about me when they hear me or see me on the different fields or the courts? And, Let me tell you, for any of you who have coached Little League and, and Rec Leagues, it's not easy to keep a good reputation between the parents and the kids and the umpires and referees. You want to lose your religion every day around all of this. But the idea here is, let's put things into action. And we don't always get it right, and I don't always get it right. In fact, here's a little story. I was coaching a couple years ago. This was in Brandywine Little League in Delaware. It's where we live and <clears throat> coaching baseball and we're up to bat. I'm on third base. I'm coaching third base. I don't remember all of the specifics around the game, but I remember there's less than two outs and it was a fairly close game. So I have my runner on third base. We're up to bat and I'm coaching him up hey, if they hit it through, you know, you're going, you don't, you're don't. you not looking, you're just going, you're scoring. If it's in the air, hey, I want you to stay close. It wasn't a force out. So I said, we're going to try to tag up, all right? So the kid's not going to remember it, just look at me when the ball's hit and I'll tell you what to do. So the ball is hit and it's a fly ball, but it's not deep. It's kind of just over the infield and I see the first baseman have to turn to make the play. So I get the kid, I'm like, get back, get back, we're tagging up. So I have him at third base. As soon as he catches the ball, he takes off. Halfway down to third base, the coach from the other dugout walks out, Time out. calls timeout. I couldn't handle that. I mean, these five-year-olds need to know as early as T-ball that this is not acceptable. It wasn't T-ball. They were like at least 10 years old. So I come out, And I start giving it to him. You can't call timeout. The ball's still in play. And plus, you can't just call timeout and walk onto the the field. You got to ask the umpire to call timeout, and the umpire calls timeout. And immediately I feel the environment change. And it was because of me. And then I start kind of running things in my mind like this isn't a championship. There's there's not even, you know, standing implications in this game. And I begin to backpedal, and the other coach is like, well, fine, I don't care, I'm not, you know, let the run score, I'm not worried, and I'm backpedaling, no, 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 bring him back, it's all fine, oh, man. And uh, he wasn't trying to stop my run from scoring. Turns out he was just trying to get his pitcher off the mound because he had reached his pitch count, and he was just trying to make sure that things were happening on his side of the field. We're all coaches in Little League trying to learn, and he didn't even realize someone was tagging up. So after the inning, I apologize. I apologize to the umpire and to our team. I was like, I, I just really overreacted. wasn't necessary. Sorry. Things were okay. Like it, it, it righted itself. But suffice to say that Jesus doesn't expect perfection. None of us are going to be great representatives of Jesus all of the time. It's just not going to happen. We lose our temper. We lose our cool. We say the wrong things. We do the wrong things. But I think if we can do our best to right our wrongs and to approach things with humility, we can still, even in our messiness, become great representatives of Jesus. My wife, Courtney, she's been uh, walking the neighborhood with a few of her uh, friends who also live in the in our neighborhood, and they've just been doing this in the morning hours. And I get curious about what, what women talk about. I don't know about you, when men aren't around. So I asked her. I said, "What did you guys talk about today?" Just kind of fishing a little bit. She and I was shocked when one of the mornings she said, "Well, the Old Testament." It's like what? Like, I'm a a pastor, and I study the Bible sometimes for my work as I'm preparing for things, and I don't think I've ever had a pickup conversation with a group of guys around the Old Testament. But then as she was sharing this, I was like, wow, that's actually kind of cool. It wasn't her that brought it up. Somebody in the group had the courage to just bring up a topic like the Old Testament in a very common way everyday situation. And it wasn't met with conflict. It wasn't like, hey, we don't talk about that. We stick to these topics, and that's what we're going to... No, it was met with intrigue, and oh, yeah, I've, I've kind of wondered about that too. And it's been an ongoing dialogue between these ladies, which is... It's a phenomenal thing. So it doesn't have to be these grand supernatural occurrences, It's just our everyday life, how we interact with people. And then at the right time, we can share Christ. We can invite them to come and see. And our reputation has earned us the respect to be able to do that. And it's usually met with intrigue. Oh, well, you seem to be a pretty nice person in general. Well, I'll check it out. You know, I like you, so I'll go and do something that you enjoy. People are typically open to going places with people who they like. So let's be enjoyable people to be around. So this is a daily decision to act instead of choosing inactivity. And Jesus says to go. You be me. And as he gathered his disciples after his resurrection... One last time, to their disbelief, He reveals to them again, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going back to my Father. And you can almost sense the deflating effect that this had on the disciples. Like, what do you mean? Like, how can you leave? And Jesus encourages them and said, look, I, I've told you this all along. You've just missed it. I never intended to stay long. And I don't need to because I have you. And paraphrasing, Jesus said, now you go be me. The world needs you to bring people to me. I don't need to be here. I've done my work, and now it's your turn. So how do we tie all of this together and bring it into two final responses for us? I'd like to categorize these two responses for two distinct responses. Categories of people here. One, firstly, is for those who are Christians, those who would consider themselves to be Christ followers, and you're trying to be a disciple and apprentice of Jesus. I'd say the proper response for us is to choose to engage in the missionary task of reaching out to others. Choose action over inaction. Choose to participate in the greatest and most significant mission in history, the most exciting and the most notable activity we could ever be called to participate in. Run away from inaction and run away from apathy and go and be Jesus. If we could break these 11 weeks down into one idea, one simplified phrase, and we said it before, love God and love others. If we can get these two things right, even most of the time, it's going to result in very good things for us. And Then lastly, for those who have not made that decision in their life, if you have never embraced Jesus, today is the day. Scripture tells us there's no need to delay. There's no steps you need to take to make yourself prepared to accept Jesus. There's no certain things you have to do. You don't have to get your life right and then run to Jesus. He says, no, don't delay. Jesus came and he paid the price for our sins and he died on the cross and he rose again and he offers that salvation to each of us today. And for those who have never made that decision, I'd like to give you the opportunity, if you would like to, to choose that today. So would you all... Please bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm going to lead us in a prayer, and there's nothing there's nothing special about these particular words. But I want to guide you if, if you're wanting to make Jesus the leader of your life and accept him to be your Savior. Just repeat these phrases after me in the quietness of your heart. Say, Heavenly Father, I've been doing life my own way for too long. And now I want to ask your son, Jesus, to be my savior. I know that there is sin in my heart and I confess that to you. And I'm making a a promise, a decision that I'm going to act differently because I want Jesus to be the leader of my life. I invite him now into my heart and I'm committed to being a follower of him. Thank you. In your son Jesus' name, amen. Now, if that was something that you decided to do today, we'd love to celebrate that decision with you on your connection card, either in the seat back in front of you or digitally. Just let us know that you made that decision because there's lots of support that we can offer to you. There's resources we can send to you. And there's ways that we can help you along your new spiritual journey. So please let us know so we can come alongside of you. Would you please stand with us as we conclude with one final song for this morning?